Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Good morning. We are continuing in 1 John through our series entitled Friends. And so if you have your scriptures, open it up to 1 John chapter 3. And let's pause as we pray, as we move forward. God, you have invited us into a relationship that is deeper than just forgiveness. You have called us to be friends Father, forgiveness was the pathway to the relationship that you desire to have with us. And as we look at these passages this morning, I pray that we would be open to this friendship that you are inviting us to. And may you give us understanding and may it provoke within us, Father, motivation to be better friends with you. We do thank you for this invitation we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 John chapter 3. Remember, John was one of Jesus' best friends. He, he walked with Jesus every day, got up, went to breakfast wherever they went to breakfast, had lunch wherever they ate lunch, had dinner wherever they ate dinner. Whatever Jesus did, he was there watching it, witnessing it, learning from that. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in the end of his life, he is writing these things so that people will understand the truth about who Jesus was and what Jesus is wanting for us. And last week we covered these verses, but these verses have so much in them, I just really wanted to touch on these again. And so we're going to be looking again. Thank you, Rick, for putting that up. Um, we're going to be looking at these few verses because I think there's a lot to be grasped in these verses. So starting at verse 19, it says, By this we shall know that we, that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, this being that we love one another. That's what he talked about last week. If we love one another, we'll be assured that we are in the truth. 
But he goes on and he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. One of the things a friend does is it helps their friend when they're down. You go through something, a struggle, a breakup, a loss of a job, some kind of health issue. You go to your friends because they are a support to you at that time. They are there to kind of give you a hand to pull you out of whatever pit you might be in. And we're finding that Jesus is that kind of a friend who is able to pull us out of those kinds of pits. Have you ever had a job that you just hated? Okay, (laughs) boy, that hand went up. I see that hand. Where you just did not want to go to work the next day. Right? I I can remember when I was doing construction, doing fire sprinklers, we did a, a theater It was like 10 theaters, and we had to get there early in the morning. And what happened, one of the days I remember I had the flu, but had to go to work because had to to make money, right, to pay the bills. And, And so what we did is it was a day of just loading and unloading pipe. They just drove this truck full of pipe, just iron pipe, and we would have to take the pipe off the truck, walk it to the place, stage it, and then go back and do that. And I remember one morning, got there at six in the morning, and that's all we did for till it was lunchtime, was just move pipe, move pipe, move. I was feeling sick already. I sat down, and I just wanted to throw up, and I was just like, oh, I'm so done. And right when lunch was over, another truck came in. And you don't cry. So I just went to the bathroom and stayed there for a while and came out. Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I can do this. Just did not want to be there at that time. And it didn't just, that was one of those difficult jobs where we went inside and it was kind of dark. And then when you got done, it was still kind of dark. I mean, it was inside a theater. They make theaters dark so that, you know, I just, it was oppressive. It was terrible. Just want you to feel sorry for me. Thank you. Or maybe you're a mom and you spend three hours cleaning your house and in five minutes, the kids can make a mess of it. And you think, this is going to happen again tomorrow and the next day and the next day until God knows when they move out or what happens and who knows what that and you can have this kind of frustrating feeling of this just is going on and what's the purpose and why is this happening am i ever going to get out of this circumstance and i think sometimes we can even feel that way spiritually where we feel like you know what i just am stuck and i can't seem to get out of this pit I'm in. I've been living under this 
situation, maybe it's a habit, an addiction, some kind of struggle that you're in and you feel like there's just no way out of this. I'm just going through this and it's been here since I said yes to Jesus and I've been walking with Jesus for so many years and I still am in this place and I just feel like I'm not getting better. What's the point? There are people who are not here this morning because the idea of going someplace and trying to hear about things of what they know they should be, but then the the fatality of who they are is too much for them. And that divide is a hurdle they can't get over. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel that way, but you showed up with this hope, this idea that, God, please help me. I'm, I know this is a good thing for me, but man, I just don't feel like I'm getting any better. Now, we might not raise our hand to those things, but I, I bet there are a lot of people who are like that. And I have found that the people who are success, successful in any of these areas, whether it be in an area of work, an area at home, or in their spiritual life, the people who are successful are the people who actually make the climb and continue. The people who get up in spite of the house being dirty again. The people who get up and go and unload the truck one more time or show up to church one more time. The people who actually make progress are the people who show up to make progress. The people who give up usually don't go further, which is obvious, right? But what gets you up? What makes it so that you want to go further? How is it that we can transition from this place of I'm feeling stuck to a place where we move forward. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says, For the righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. The righteous falls. And I think when the writer says seven times, the number seven is significant. It has to do with the number of completion. I think what he's trying to say is when the righteous completely fall, I mean, they are flat on their face. They have hit bottom. They rise up again. And that's the difference from making it to not is being able to get up again. But what motivates us to do that? What causes us to get up again? What will you get up What will get you up and keep you going? What is going to be our motivation to help us move forward? You see, this verse that we just read comes right after John tells us that we are to love like Jesus. Small task, right? Love like Jesus. Oh, by the way, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and knows everything. But notice in verse 20, it says, for whenever your heart condemns us, condemns you. I don't know about you, but my heart can condemn me whenever, right? It's not like it's always one time. It's like whenever it happens. And it happens at different times, at different stages of life. But when it happens, we are given this hope. And so I want to look at a little bit of a definition of what does he mean by our heart? I mean, there's a lot of ideas of what this could be. 
You know, it could be the center of our being, center of our emotion. But for the sake of this conversation here, I want to talk about three things. The heart is really the nearest, the dearest, and the closest voice in your being. It's the most familiar voice that you have, so familiar that you're probably not even aware that it's happening at times. You ever see someone and they're talking to themselves? You ever talk to yourself, right? We all do it. It's when it's out loud that we start to get worried, right? Oh, was, I, was that my outside voice? I didn't mean that. But we all have this conversation. Why did I do that? Oh, that was stupid. I wonder what I wanted to have for lunch. You have this talk that's going on in your mind, and it's kind of going, it's part of that reasoning that's taking place within you. And so the heart is kind of the center, the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so I want to look at the thoughts I want to look at our will and I want to look at our emotions and kind of have that conversation. Our thoughts, what's more powerful than the thoughts and the things that we have? How it moves us when we think something. Have you ever been so convinced about something? It just, this is how it is. Maybe it's even a belief that you have. You know, you grew up in church and you were taught one thing and you're like, yes, that's the way it is. And then... Sometime later, all of a sudden, you hear something else and you go, huh, maybe that's not the way it is. Maybe it's this way. And you've been so convinced at one thing, and then all of a sudden it changes. Just the way you're thinking. You have a different set of thoughts, but those thoughts are the things that get you moving in a direction. And so it's so important to have good thoughts, but so many times our thoughts change. In relationships with one another, right? You have a conversation with someone. This is how it is. This is how I believe things to be. And if we get set in our ways and how we're thinking, and then our wife comes and says, well, what about this? And then you have to either change your thoughts or hold on to them. And Sometimes we hold on to them even though what she said was right, and I should change them. How we think sometimes get locked. We get stuck in these things, but it's so important how we think. But if you're like me, you find that my thoughts have changed over the years. I'm not the same person I was five years ago, 10 years ago. Who am I going to be in another five years? The thought of that is mind-boggling. And so our, our thoughts are part of that center of our being, but they are changing. And then there's our will, the decisions that we make. And truthfully, the decisions are the truth of who you are. The things you do tell me who you are. So everything that you do is the clear representation of who you really are. How does that make you feel? Is anyone a little like, uh, uh, because we don't always let everyone know all the things that we think, and we definitely don't want everyone to know all the things that we do, because sometimes they're not that great. And there's no escaping the things that you do. That's who you are. That really is the bottom line. I mean, bam, that's you. Who are you? You're the things you do. What do you do? None of your business, preacher. 
I just called myself preacher. I can't believe that. Then there's the emotions. Is anything more fickle than our emotions? I mean, my goodness, our emotions change, but there's nothing more real to us than how we feel. How you feel at a time really dictates how you react to things that you do. Famous quote by Woody Allen, heart wants what the heart wants. He quoted that when he left his wife for the stepdaughter, right? Like, what? You know, it's like, this isn't normal. This isn't good. But you see, we lived in a time where what you feel is what is real. I know people who believe in Jesus, but if they don't like what you did or what you said, man, that's it. They'll put you on the train and say goodbye to friendship, right? Bye. Nice knowing you. We'll see you later. It's like that is how I feel. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to react on how I feel. That's just how it is. But there's nothing more fickle than the things that we feel so many times. And so what dominates our lives more than these things? This is the heart of who we are, the way we think, the things that we do and how we feel. But those things so often fail us, even by our own standards. And the problems are obvious. I change my mind all the time. I'm schizophrenic in my actions. I can be generous. I can be greedy. I can be loving. I can be mean. My emotions are as fickle as a politician's words on an election year. I can flip and I can flop. What do we do in this situation? Jeremiah chapter 17. I love this Eugene Phillips uh, translation in the message. It says, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Oh, man, don't we pretend to be? Don't we like to pretend to be better than we really are? But then every now and then, we have to own the truth. And sometimes that's a difficult pill to swallow and sometimes that's the place we find ourselves and what jeremiah is telling us and what john is pushing us to is that god is greater than my foolish thoughts that god is greater than the dumb decisions that i make that god is greater than my embarrassing impulses and emotions that God is stronger than these things, that God's thoughts about me are more powerful than my thoughts about me. Think about that. God's thoughts about who you really are are more powerful than your thoughts about who you really are. So it's important to understand who does God think I am? What does God want to say to me in this situation? In Psalm 139, we are told that his thoughts about us are more numerous than the sand that's on the sea. 
that God thinks about you more than you think about you. And you probably think about you a lot. I know I've talked to people who say, oh, I don't want to go to church because everyone's going to ask where I've been. I was like, I don't think they're going to ask that. I think you're thinking everyone's thinking about you a lot more than everyone's really thinking about you. <laughs> they show up and it's like, hey, no one asked me where I was. Sorry about that, buddy. That's because you haven't been here. And that's an important part of friendship, right, is you have to show up. You have to be a part of that friendship. And so as much as you think about you, God thinks about you more. God's thoughts about you can transform your thoughts about you. And you see, even though the way you think and the things you do and the emotions you feel change and let you down, God is greater. And he knows everything. And that is meant to bring us hope. That's meant to encourage us. You know, as I was thinking about this idea of our hearts condemning us and the voices that shape us, our own voice that tells us these things, I've thought about how many times in my life I have had this conversation in my own mind and in my own heart that's condemning. I can't do that. And I, I, I got to tell you, standing up here, talking to you about God, there are so many times I, I come up here and I go, I'm not the one who should be telling these people about this. We should get someone who's a little more on the ball than me. We should get someone else who can do this better than I can. My conversation many times is just, I'm not the one to do this. Right now you're thinking, well, what are you doing this for then? <laughs> if you're not the one, can't we get the one who is supposed to? But you see, I think we all have that conversation. At least I think it's a human trait. Probably should worry about the person who thinks they are the one and doesn't have any problems. But you see, there isn't one of us that it doesn't think question themselves and the things that they go through and wonder, like, I can't be this kind of a mom. I can't be this kind of a husband. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I am not good enough to be in this position, whatever that position is. And we have this voice that just talks us down, that just disqualifies us. Some of you have heard this voice and maybe it's from a sibling. Maybe it's from parents who said you're not good enough. I know some teachers have told their students that they would never amount to anything and they carry that voice with them to this day that it haunts them, that they remember the third grade Mrs. McKinley or whatever her name was and how she said, you will never amount to anything. And that voice has resonated in their mind, has resonated in their soul. And that's the story that they've been telling themselves for years. And their hearts are condemning them. And I think of what happened in the garden at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, when they had eaten the fruit that was forbidden, and they hid because they were naked, and they told God, we were hiding because... We were naked and God said to them, 
who told you that you were naked? Who told them? They told themselves. They had this story. We are naked. We are ashamed. We cannot come before you. That was their story about themselves. And God said, who told you that? Because God didn't see them as that. He saw them as much more. He knew they had fallen. He knew their condition. But they were now writing their story. And they were now condemning themselves before God said anything. And sometimes that's the position we find ourselves in. We are telling our story. We come and we say, I can't go there. I can't come before God. Why? Because I'm naked. And God would say, who told you you were naked? Who's writing your story? Who's writing your thoughts? Whose reel are you replaying over and over again? And then there's the story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. If you turn with me there, another powerful story. They went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. There's so much that we need to stop and understand what's happening right here. First of all, we need to understand that their intention all along wasn't to do what's right. They were to test Jesus. That was what their plan was. And what seems to be missing in this little narration, these first verses, is the most important thing. It's the woman. She's just a sidebar. She's just a side note. She's just a excuse so that they can continue what they want to do. And Jesus seems to ignore them, stoops and starts writing on the ground. Verse seven, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, this is the first time she's addressed, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Jesus challenged those who brought this woman as just a tool for their purposes. 
and called them out, said, if you're without sin, you throw the first stone. And the reason they went from oldest to youngest and left is probably because the ones who are older have more memory of all the things that they've done. When we're younger, we seem to think we're a little bit more together than when we're older. The older we get, hopefully the more truthful we are about ourselves. And at the end, when everyone's left and Jesus is alone standing there with her, he says, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She says, no. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he tells her to go and to not continue sinning. But you have to picture what's happening right here because this is really a troubling image for me. This woman is brought naked before Jesus, ashamed, humiliated. Just a side note in everyone's mind to what their agenda is. Jesus is the only one who addresses her. The safest place that she can be is there before Jesus. Jesus says he doesn't condemn her and he tells her to go away, but she goes away naked. You'd think someone would say, hey, get her a cloak or something, but we don't see that. She's just standing. He doesn't even address, hey, someone could get some clothes. He doesn't see her as naked. I wonder if we still see ourselves as naked, if we're still telling ourselves the story that we are naked and ashamed, that we have no ability to come before God, but maybe we need to listen to God who doesn't address us as naked, doesn't see us as someone who needs to be ashamed, but sees us as someone we could talk with and doesn't condemn us in our condition. Maybe there is a place where we can stand before God completely vulnerable with who we really are and how we think and the things that we do and the emotions that we feel. And God can say, I see you. You are completely naked, but I do not condemn you. When your heart condemns you, God is greater. Who will we listen to and how We are going to live our lives. You see, we stand here not because we think we can, not because we're good enough in the things that we do we can, not because we feel like we can. We stand here because God has not condemned us. We stand here because of what he has done. See, God does not see me as fallen, God does not see me as broken and invaluable. Instead, God sees me as redeemed. He sees me as restored. He sees me as righteous. Oh my gosh. If you saw yourself the way God sees you in Christ, you would not condemn yourself. You would stand righteous and you would have the ability to move your life forward because you are not stuck. Something has been done for you. There is a different conversation you need to have in your mind. There's a different thing that motivates our action. There's a different thing that consumes how we feel. This is the reason we get up and continue moving is because Jesus doesn't condemn us, but was condemned for us. We are free from that voice forever. Forever.
Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater. That same word. He's greater than our hearts. My father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. This is where we belong. This is where I want to put my trust is in the one who puts me into the Father's hands. What's true for you is these words that Jesus has spoken. Now, we feel good about this, right? This is good news. Everyone's like, yeah, this is the kind of service I like. You can strutting out of here. Um, but let's get back to the context of John. Those things that are true about you are true about the person you don't really care about. (laughs) All these things that we embrace and hold on, that God has given us this amazing grace, are true for the people who have hurt us as well. And what would happen if we actually started living like that? What if, what if we were the kind of church that believed that anyone could get back up? You see, the way churches run so many times is if a person stumbles, oh, she was caught in adultery. Well, let's scrutinize her and make sure she's got her life together before we let her back in these doors. Well, I heard she wants to serve. Oh, no, not yet. Not quite. Let's make sure you really are repentant because we still see you as naked. What if we were the kind of church just to let people get back up? Oh, man, you know that church? They give people all kinds of chances. They're restoring all kinds of people. Man, you wouldn't believe the people that are going to that church. How does that make me smile? As I know some of our stories, right? That's us. Hey! <laughs> what if we were that kind of church? That let even the people that have hurt us and wronged us enjoy the same freedom, righteousness, lack of condemnation that we get to bask in. Church of second, third, fourth, seventh, complete chances. See, a true friend pulls the best out of us and pushes us in the best direction. That's what we need to do and that's who we need to be. And that only happens in a place where love is the goal. Because when our hearts condemn us, the way we think, things we do, how we feel, God is greater. He's greater than our hearts and he knows everything and he brings us back to that place where, do you see what he's done for you? Now do that for others. That's our mission. Let's pray. Lord, this amazing 
grace, this freeing news, this ability to live life without condemnation, even when we are naked, is so freeing that we are not locked in to our way of thinking. We are not sold to the things that we do, that we are not controlled by the way that we feel. That you have bought us and by grace have set us free from these things and you are greater than all of these things in our lives. And Lord, maybe that's what needs to take place in our lives here this morning. We need to change the conversation. We need to hear your question to us. Who told you you were naked? And we need to listen to what you say instead that you have clothed us with your righteousness. And you've set us free so that we can walk with you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who is condemning themselves because of the way they think, things they do, or how they feel, that they would recognize you are greater. That they would see your words apply right here, right now to them and to their situation. And for those of us who have maybe harbored feelings against someone else, may we extend these, this gracious freedom to them as well. And God, maybe that's where our healing will take place. Maybe what can get us up and moving in the right direction is the fact that you have saved us and have brought us and set us here so that we can extend that to others. And in extending it to others, we find the freedom starts to be satisfied within us. Lord, may Genesis be known as the community that lifts people up. May we be known as the community that does not condemn, but embraces your grace in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. May you recognize that the God who knows everything does not condemn you. And may his voice be greater than yours in your life. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy each other's company. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.